There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Have you ever had a loved one or friend with a chronic condition, suffering, with no prospect of recovery, and they spoke of wanting to die? wishing for an end to their suffering? What if it were legally possible to assist them, to provide them with their wish? And if it was, when does possibility become obligation to end the burden of loved ones? Joining us for today's episode to discuss the difficult and emotive issue of assisted dying, I have with me Dr. Chris Verster and Professor Willem Lantman, as well as a third guest who I will introduce later in the episode. Chris is currently the head of clinical unit at Worcester Regional Hospital. He has a Master's of Philosophy degree in Applied Ethics from the University of Stellenbosch, where he has served on the Health Research Ethics Committee for a number of years. Willem is a professor extraordinaire in philosophy at the University of Stellenbosch. He has studied philosophy, political philosophy, theology and law at the University of Stellenbosch, Oxford, as well as UNISA. He was formerly a professor of medical ethics at the University of North Carolina in the United States of America. He returned to South Africa to found the Ethics Institute. He's the founding CEO, and he's also an executive committee member of Dignity SA. Chris and Willem, once again, thanks for for making the time to to join us. Just a few opening words um, um, from me beyond the opening question. Death is a part of life. There's no escaping it. Uh, The transhumanists might have us morph into something potentially more than mortal beings, which is something seemingly no longer in the realms of science fiction, but that's a different topic for another day. As things stand, we all die, and hopefully along the way we have led virtuous and, and, and meaningful lives. Sometimes, though, the end is not a peaceful event, but a tortuous process of pain, suffering, and loss of dignity. Is it then reasonable for a rational person of sound mind to request an end, to request assistance with hastening death because for them there is no prospect of life worth living? And maybe by the end of this episode we'll have an answer. Certainly I'm sure we will have opinions. Willem, I'm going to start with you, and I think it's very important to set the the legal framework. And so I'm going to ask you if you could potentially give us a, a brief overview of what one might call end-of-life choices, what they are and what their legal status is in, in, in South Africa. Thank you, Christopher. I'm, I'm going to be brief, and you may wish to take up some of these points that I'm, uh, I want to make. Our common law says that physician-assisted suicide, as well as voluntary active euthanasia, are crimes. They're crimes of murder. Obviously, the facts of the, of the crimes have to be established. In opposition to that... Since 1996, our constitution introduced a number of rights. I think I can think of four key rights that I would argue support uh, a right to assisted dying. In other words, both physician-assisted suicide and voluntary active euthanasia. I think what's important mm. there is that assisted dying encompasses yes. uh, 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 assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia. And one must make the distinction? 
That's an important question. I, I, I don't think from a number of points of view, I don't think there's a, there's a serious distinction to be made. But right. the fact is that certain jurisdictions uh, legalize some of them and some both of them. Right. Or one of them and others both of them. Now, what is interesting is that the cases we've had where somebody's been sentenced uh, for for murder or found guilty of murder and then had to be sentenced is that the courts were reluctant to impose a uh, imprisonment, right. uh, a jail sentence. That's what happened to Sean Davison. But also 46 years ago to Dr. Albie Hartman, who was a GP in Sirius. Right. And um, – actually euthanized his, his father, octogenarian, suffering unbearably from cancer. He was sentenced to the rising of the court. So there's been an unease, a reluctance on the part of our law courts to really sentence people found guilty of murder in this instance, you know, uh, a sister dying. So I suppose there we're talking about how judges might interpret the act in terms of how they um, pass sentence. You see, um, they have latitude in terms of sentence. Right. Uh, unfortunately, we have a minimum sentences introduced not so long ago, which wasn't the case in 1975 with with Judge Louis von Vincent in the Hartmann case. Right. But they 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 had to find them guilty. Sean Davison had to be found guilty in terms of our law, and the same with Dr. Hartmann. Right. But the 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 discomfort, the the unease. Was actually discounted in the in the jail sentence. Now, Sean didn't have a light sentence, but it was it was certainly not fourteen years uh, in, in jail, incarceration in jail, incarceration. Absolutely. Right. So we have the common law, which says these are crimes. We have the constitution, right, which sets out these rights. Then we have the problem of sentencing, and the third or the fourth I want to say is that you know in the Supreme Court of Appeal, five judges of appeal said that. Um, there's there's a deficiency in our law, precisely because of this tension between the common law and the constitution, that will be remedied if a proper case comes to the court. So we suspend it in mid-air, as it will. Right. So we're in, so, I mean, so we're in no man's land. Yeah. Actually, and I think as you as you highlight, there is the constitution, and basically, my understanding was always, and, I've, and this is what I've seen certainly coming from a, a background of psychiatry with the mm. Mental Health Care Act where every law is supposed to be rewritten within the context of the new constitution. Now, obviously, there is this tension in terms of how law is practiced, and the question I think that is being alluded to here or being raised is, is it being practiced in harmony with the constitution as it stands? Exactly. Because if we look at constitutional rights um, in terms of the right to dignity, the right to bodily integrity, you know, where does that fit into what we're talking about? Well, I mean, you make a very important point that since 1996, we've had uh, various social rights being recognized, socioeconomic rights, labor rights, termination of pregnancy, right to be, uh, to, be to have a, one's pregnancy terminated, same-sex unions, abolition of capital punishment. So in a sense, what we're talking about here with uh, a sister dying is the last right. And the last right, R-I-T-E, that, that, that hasn't been, um, you know, fully reviewed in terms of the Constitution or not reviewed at all in terms of the Constitution. And yet there seem to me that there have been efforts to, to, to actually remedy this in yes. law, but always kind of going a little bit of the way, but not getting there and then kind of like disappearing like 
water in the desert into the sand. The Stransom Ford case was, uh, uh, you know, was taken to on appeal, right? But it was upheld. Um, so the court said that they want a proper case. That what the, should come to that all the arguments should be put on the table. Okay, so this is, I mean, this this for me was was a bit perplexing. What is a proper case? How do you define a proper case? What I don't think that's the term they use, but what they said, all the arguments must yeah. be put on the table. Well, they're looking for a specific case. It seems to me that will, in some way, bring everything together where yeah. they can make a definitive decision. You see, the the Stanton Ford case w- 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 was an application. Which was specific to Strantham Ford, right? And they and and the, the the argument was that not all the arguments were put on the table okay. at, at at the Supreme Court of Appeal, and they want they want the the advocates on both sides to flesh out all the arguments for and against changing the law to they, accommodate uh, assisted dying. Are they looking for a case that doesn't exist? Because in a sense, I mean, you, you're saying, okay, we're going. All the arguments must be encapsulated in one case so that it can be fully fleshed out, debated, decided. Does that case exist? I mean, how do you define what that case is going to be? Well, we get you. You're right. We have different cases, but what they probably want to know is, has the, you know, is 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 the request is the person competent? Is the request autonomous? Is it right. made freely? Is it on a basis of a medical condition? That is um, that is intractable, right? Uh, and pro- that that uh, produces suffering that's unbearable, right? And irreversible. So all of those aspects they want to so they're to looking be put f- on the table. Okay, so they're looking for specific criteria, exactly, which would be part and parcel of a specific that case would, that each one can be looked at and debated and argued. Should exactly, I say? not so much debated, uh, exactly. And and there is a case at the moment that's. Uh, slowly winding its way through the courts. The problem is that your applicant is always somebody, or is mostly somebody who has a terminal illness and cannot survive. Well, Strantham Ford, Strantham Ford, mm. died before the judgment. Two hours before. Although Maybe you can just elaborate slightly on that case. Can, are, you, are you able to do that? Yeah, yeah. Very briefly. Yes. Uh, Strantham Ford uh, requested to be legally assisted with dying. He was suffering from cancer. And it, uh, the appeal was, or, or the case was heard in the, in the North Harting, uh, High, High Court, Court in right. Pretoria. And, um, he, the, the interesting thing was that the day was set aside for that. But the Minister of Health, the, um, uh, opposing this application by Strantham Ford wanted a, a day's grace right. to consult with the minister. And in that time, between, Late afternoon, when the judge wanted to make his ruling, and the next morning, Stanton Ford died. So, in a sense, the case was moot. So, well, he uh, didn't he didn't benefit from the judgment. He didn't benefit from the judgment. But that judgment stands as precedent. No, it was it was it the uh, it was overturned on appeal. That's what I'd understood. But that's when the court says, when the uh, court, uh, Supreme Court of Appeal said, we want to reflect on this. We right. want. Uh, to, to think about this on the basis of all the arguments that are put on the table. But the, the court also made a very important point that if a proper case should come to mm. the court, it is not for the court to write the law. That only parliament can do. So what the court would do would be what had been done in Canada. The court would say to parliament, here is a problem in our law. 
that there's a tension here, there's an there's, there's a inconsistency that has to be rectified. And you, this is your duty uh, as, as lawmakers, parliament, you should rectify the situation. And the court foresaw that that might happen one, one day or would happen one day. Um, so I think that's a very important point which, which, which people don't necessarily understand is that courts simply interpret the law, but it's parliament that writes the law. Yes. So if there is, a, if there are going to be changes to the law, it's got to come through parliament. Exactly. And I think that's, that's key in terms of who we lobby ultimately. If one is inclined to want laws, you have to go through those channels. Yeah, but I, you see, unless a court like the Supreme Court of Appeal or the Constitutional Court tells parliament that you have a duty, you have a moral duty right. and a legal duty to do something about this, nothing will happen because we have that, uh, uh report that President Mandela commissioned and the report came out in 1998 uh, about end-of-life choices which also included uh, assisted dying right. and, and, and that report also you know, uh, included a, a draft legislation But it didn't go anywhere didn't go anywhere, it was on Monte Shabalala's Simang's uh, desk for 10 years and nobody's done anything so I'm not very optimistic about about uh, Going to Parliament and tell them this is your sure. duty, they won't do anything. I mean, it's a dysfunctional body in in, in other respects anyway. So, and you know, the the point is that dying people are not a a, a pressure group or a political a group with political power, unlike women, you know, and termination of pregnancy. Right. So, I mean, so that's a very interesting point because the truth of the matter is, and I think that's where dignity essay comes in in terms of death with dignity. I do think that that's a, a, a I mean. Everybody wants to die a dignified death. Mm. So in, in that sense, everybody has a vested interest, I would say, because we all die. So we don't all necessarily seek abortions, yeah. but we all definitely die. And we don't know how we will die. Correct. Uh, we may die a, a gentle death and, 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 and in, in, peace, in peace or violently and suddenly in a car crash. But we do not know whether we will die in the fashion that, that Strantham Ford died. So I think people don't necessarily think sufficiently about their death for it to be an issue for them. Precisely. Until something happens where they are confronted with a, a situation where they now have to reflect on this. Because I would say to you, wow, we've got the entire population. Yeah. That's the biggest lobbying group possible. But they don't think about it. Exactly. Uh, so, 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 so my question is, is it how it's portrayed? Is it how it is, 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 is understood in the general public as actually this is an issue which is not for a selected few suffering people because, but by the grace of God, that could be you. Christopher, I've, I have uh, appeared on programs like these for more than 25 years yes. and I find that there has been a change. It's not a scientific observation that I make. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's an anecdotal observation, but, Judging by how people write in the, in the media, on social media, which is something that they, you know, we didn't have 25 years ago, judging, uh, you know, in terms of responses to newspaper articles, radio programs, there's a far greater understanding and yes. there's, there's overwhelming support. But I'm not, I mean, obviously this support comes from people who have a radio and, and take yes. the trouble of, of, of phoning in or making yes. comments. So I'm not suggesting that if we have a referendum, the majority of South Africans would support this. But I think there's been a shift. But for that matter, I think the evidence that we have, the majority of South Africans do not 
support termination of pregnancy. And with the violence that we have, actually do support capital punishment. But the, the question is not how the majority feels. Mm. It is what does the Constitution, in terms of our rights, say is, 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 is legal. Right. So we didn't cover the other end-of-life choices, but just for uh, um, um, being comprehensive – there's end-of-life pain management, which can lead yep. to death if one uses excessive uh, analgesia. So that's one possibility. There's refusal of and refraining from life-sustaining treatment. That's another one. And then, of course, advanced directives. Now, each one of these is a whole separate entity in and of themselves, but the one that we are really focused on is the, the fourth one, which is the assisted dying. If I could just add, yes. those others were incorporated in the report that I, 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 of the South African Law Commission, which right. President Mandela commissioned, and, and they even failed, the Parliament even failed to address them. And what we get now, I think, you know, we have a lot of, under management of pain because of fear of you know, patients dying too too soon, uh, and 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 legal liability that follows from that yes. withdrawal of care. I think there's overtreatment with right. withdrawal and and withholding of, of of care also for 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 legal reasons of legal liability. So they could have been addressed and they were addressed in the report, but we haven't made any progress with that. And then. Obviously, advanced directives. We, people are uncertain about the legal status of a yes. of, of a living will, or and that is basically where you, in advance, in a competent state of mind, say, yes. "If this were to happen, yes. this is what I would like yes. to happen." Do not treat me; just right. let me die. So, I think one of the key issues in 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 each of these options is 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 the one of competence, and I think I'm going to bring Chris in shortly mm. to to discuss that issue because who assesses competence and what is. Competence in terms of how you understand things, how you reason, mm. how you communicate, and and how consistent is your, uh, you know, how, how capable are you of making those those decisions? So I think competence is a very important component in each of these choices. I think so. You know, the important thing to realize about competence, I think, is is that it is um, it is task relative. You know, a kid yes, can be okay. competent to choose vanilla ice cream rather than chocolate ice cream, right. but here the competence is is, is about. Are you competent to decide about the continuation of your life or the ending of your own life? So that's a particular benchmark, and we have to look at reasoning and 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 all the aspects of that. How we how we assess that. So another component or other components of um, which go beyond competence is the issue around autonomy and no coercion, because one of the arguments that has been used against is that if it's legally possible, when does it become an obligation to actually? End your life to ease the burden of suffering of others around you. In jurisdictions where we have assisted dying that's, that's been legalized, the important aspect is that it must be initiated by the person who wants right. to die. That, that's, that, that's a baseline. And, and uh, it must be, it must be a free request in terms of your chosen values. It mustn't be just a haphazard thing that happens, right. pops up one day. There, there must be, it must form a pattern and must tie in with your, with your, your chosen values over a period of time. So that, that's where the safeguards would actually look at that. You know, is, is, the, is, the, is the request based in a, a, a kind of illness uh, that, that's serious that's, right. that's, uh, and, and with, certain, with, with suffering? And, and does it, does it, is it consistent with the patient's uh, chosen values? And right. is, it, is the request repeated, etc.? So it's a process. It's a actually. process, and the patient must be given the chance to, to rescind the, the, the choice. Yes, because I think that can happen, mm. obviously. I think one of the other tensions is what the law might decide versus what a professional body might decide. 
So the courts may say, well, we find you not guilty or we find you guilty of uh, murder and we sentence you to whatever the sentence would be. You serve your time, you're done, but your professional body says we take you off the register. It's exactly what happened to Dr. Hartmann. The, the judge didn't want to sentence him to jail. He sentenced him to the rising of the court so that when the judge left the courtroom, was Hartmann f- was set free. But his professional body scrapped him. Right. Uh, so that's another tension exactly. that has to be addressed. How do professional bodies view the same act versus how the courts might? Well, I think if it's, if it's decriminalized, then the professional body can't go against that. Then that, that tension will be, will be uh, resolved. Okay, so that's a key issue. Yeah. It's, the, it's the decriminalization yes. which would then resolve that tension and yes. actually would resolve a lot of the tensions exactly. that we have. Exactly. So I, um, I wanted to raise one other issue briefly. And because I, I saw that the Minister of Health's response or argument against uh, assisted dying was palliative care. Yes. So we can give palliative care. So why do we need to hasten the end? Well, I mean, obviously palliative care varies. So let's assume it's, it's optimal. Let's assume it's perfect. We live in an ideal world. You still have to go through a period where you – have to receive medicine where you feel uncomfortable, where you feel, you know, managing my my pain and my suffering is degrading. Is a way I don't want this to continue. So, the argument there would be that it's it's somebody's personal choice yes. not to die in that way with with palliative care that that drags out, you know, f- that could drag out. The dying process, for argument's sake, another two yes. two weeks. So that's it's a critical it, issue. Mm. It's a personal choice. Personal choice. The yeah. fact that palliative care Very is available so. doesn't mean that I necessarily have to comply or to participate in that level of I care. I think palliative care, care is enormously important. Of course, of course. It is, it is non-negotiable. Yeah. But for some patients, they may be in the progression of their disease, their illness, there comes a point where they say, I, I don't want it any longer. Yes. Just, just remove this. Not only remove, stop it, but end it for me, help help me to end this. And it's their personal choice. And those who don't want to make that choice don't have to. No, That's the wonderful thing. Yes. It is a personal choice. There's no coercion. So, Willem, I'm going to shift from mm, you to, sure. to Chris, and I'm going to go from the general to the specific, and specifically psychiatry. So, obviously, the, the issue of assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide, you know, when psychiatrists hear the word suicide, it kind of raises uh, red flags. And obviously, there are two aspects that I really wanted to to look at because the one is where psychiatry fits into, let me call it assisted dying, within the context of a terminal physical illness and then within the context of something which is emerging within the context of a mental illness, which I think is something which is not brand new, but it's certainly emerging in, 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 in more recent times. So, Chris, I wanted to ask your, your thoughts on, for example, uh, assisted dying and this whole issue, and this is in, within the context of a, of a terminal physical illness, and the issue of competence. Does, does psychiatry have a role to play there? Um, I think it, psychiatry definitely does, and some of the countries which allow for assisted dying would actually require um, at least one or two psychiatrists to be involved in the assessment. Right. Um, and the problem with, with competency is that it, it, it can change over time. So obviously somebody who has a serious terminal illness 
as the illness progresses, um, there might or might, might very well come a time when, when the person is no longer able to, to competently uh, make these decisions right. for him or herself. Right. Um, but also... So that's, a, so that's a problem, right? Because at a certain point, you're competent, and maybe when you most need to be able to make that decision, you are deemed incompetent, and therefore the decision can't be made. Yeah, so that, that, that brings the issue of and maybe something like an advanced directive. Right. Um, so when you, when you, when you know what will most likely happen to you, should not, should that not be the time that you should make this decision? And then that should be a, a sort of a binding decision. Yes. Um, the problem also is with, I'm going to assume that for any person who, who considers a request for assisted dying, um, there must be, quite extensive emotional trauma, emotional issues that they, they would be going through. And then this raises the issue of psychiatric conditions like depression, etc., right. um, which by itself then can impact on your, your ability to make a, I don't want to use the, the word truly autonomous decision because I don't believe there is something like a truly autonomous decision, but it can impact on your, your decision-making processes. Right. And in the literature, it has been described that, that people may have good reasons and can make good arguments for, for re requesting a, a process of assisted dying. And then even with progression of a terminal illness, this changes over time. Right. Maybe a month or three later, they feel that maybe this is not what they would want. So it, it really is complicated to, um, to make these decisions. And, and my opinion is that it should never just be a once-off decision. It should be a process. Yes. I think that's exactly what uh, I'd, I'd said earlier to, to, to Willem, so I'm in complete agreement with that. And I mean, just in terms of depressive symptomatology, potentially influencing one's inclination towards physician-assisted suicide, there does seem to be a link. And so therefore, the psychiatric involvement would be to make sure that the decision is not based on the presence of such symptomatology, which could influence a decision. What would your thoughts be there? Yeah, I think so. Um, it also raises the question when one when one talks about terminal illnesses, what is a terminal psychiatric illness? Okay, so that's um, that's <laughs> that's going to be something which I wanted to 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 touch on because obviously, you know, we're speaking specifically now within the context of a physical illness, but what I'm seeing is the emergence of this move into psychiatry. Um, and there the question would be, what is a terminal illness in, in, in terms of psychiatry? So it seems to me that there is a move towards physician-assisted suicide, certainly in the Netherlands, from what I've seen, uh, being something which is available for psychiatric patients and something which, to a limited extent, but certainly it has been pursued. So I think that's, that's where our conversation is going next, which is to now psychiatric patients who do not have a physical terminal illness – what are your thoughts there when we talk about physician-assisted suicide? Um, I think on the one hand, one, one should maybe consider moving away from using the word illness and talk right. about terminal suffering. Right. Um, because I think one of the first, one of the first sort of worldwide well-known cases um, where psychiatric reasons for assisted dying was presented was in the early 90s in Belgium. Psychiatrist with a very Belgian name, Bodevain Chabot. Right. He he requested um, the right to be to be for assisted dying for one of his patients, 
um, who actually he found that she did at that stage not have a diagnosable psychiatric illness, but the emotional suffering that, that she was undergoing because of, of, I think she was a single parent and both her sons had died. And she just, there was just no sense in her continuing with her life anymore, even though you could not um, formally make a psychiatric diagnosis. So the emphasis moved away from the, the, the potential illness rather than she is in a state of constant suffering. And I think people would probably or mostly find that difficult to, to equate physical suffering to, to emotional suffering. I mean, it's relatively easy to understand that somebody with terminal cancer, metastases, etc., chronic pain, the severe pain, etc., um, how bad that suffering must be. But then to, to, to compare that to emotional suffering, I think it's, it's generally a difficult thing to do, but we cannot ignore that because emotional suffering, um, people are really suffering. And, and if this is a persistent state, then your quality of life is, is virtually nothing. Well, I think that's very important because, I mean, for any diagnosis to be made in psychiatry using the DSM-5 Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the fifth version, suffering is a component. And, you know, the person must be suffering, and, of course, they must have impaired functioning. So quality of life is definitely impacted. So I think virtually every psychiatric condition, if you're going to make the diagnosis, has these criteria or has these qualifiers in order to make the diagnosis. So I think certainly in psychiatry, suffering is 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 something which is across the board. I think what you're saying is people can't necessarily relate to the extent of suffering that might lead someone to say, I would like my life to end. But of course, there is suicide. And so psychiatric patients do suffer to the point where they attempt and succeed in terms of killing themselves. So I think that speaks volumes for, for the kind of suffering that one might experience with a psychiatric illness. Your, your thoughts there, Chris? Yeah, and it's interesting that we would, I think all psychiatrists would, would, would feel very strongly that, yes, we can empathize with somebody who, who decides that suicide is the only option out and I mean, there the are criteria for, for, for something called rational suicide as well. Um, but the question then is, does that differ so much from, from somebody who requests assistance? Yes. Maybe. And I, I think as far as I remember, that was one of the arguments that, that, that Dr. Chabot had with his patient. He said that um, he'd known her for a long time. And if she decides to go and commit suicide by herself, it's a, it's a very lonely, isolated process. And he felt that, that, in, in that stage of her life or during that decision-making process, he would not want to desert her. He wanted to be, be there with her. Right. Um, so, I mean, we're starting to see cases where physician-assisted suicide is approved in certain jurisdictions, certain, certain countries. And so we have to accept that this is a phenomenon that exists. I think for us as psychiatrists and, and, and within the context of our discipline, the question is how comfortable we feel with facilitating something which we spend a lot of time trying to prevent. Yeah, I think in the broader context as well, um, I think you would find many, many doctors who have, have an understanding and sympathy of, of the whole issue of requesting assisted dying, but to, to actually be involved in, in the process um, it is much more difficult, and, and I think for psychiatrists as well. It's one thing to say that I understand that my patient really feels that, that there's no sense in living anymore, but, but I don't necessarily want to be the one who helps him or her. And that's something that we need to talk about. Yes, 
And I think the other issue for me is that people can change their minds and certainly mental state changes. So one must be careful that a moment of despair doesn't lead to a final uh, uh, decision about life or death because at the end of the day, things can change. Treatment options evolve. There's a natural history of illness, as we know, in psychiatry. So I think one has to be a little bit cautious, I think, when it comes to psychiatry. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are, Chris. Yeah, I think you know, you know that, that, that when one starts talking about something like treatment-resistant depression, right. you would always have somebody who would say, but have you tried this? Have you, have you considered going up to this sort of mega dosage of a specific drug? So there will always be somebody with 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 a next suggestion, right? Um, but there are, I mean, there are criteria for for truly resistant depression, and I think maybe that 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 is one of the most important things that if the legislation is to go ahead, there would have to be clear guidelines as right. to um, if you were to consider um, psychi- psychiatric reasons for assisted dying, the criteria would be would have to be very 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 well documented and 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 defined. Yes, so. When Willem walked into the studio earlier, he said there'd been some news coming out of Canada in terms of psychiatric patients and uh, assisted dying. Willem, do you just want to mention it briefly and Chris can comment? Yeah, very, very briefly. The, the Canadian um, penal code said that in order to, or, or criminal code, yes. said in order to qualify for uh, assisted dying, you have to, and I quote, you have to have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. Now, that was interpreted since 2015 as meaning that you must have a physical illness. Right. Psychiatric patients only qualified if they had a comorbidity, if, if they had also had a physical illness. Right. In other words, a terminal, a terminal, invariably a terminal illness. What has happened now, um, it, it, you know, the Canadians have argued that this is inconsistent with what the criminal code said. And that you cannot discriminate against uh, mental patients, psychiatric patients. patients. So they've constituted a, a panel who submitted, in fact, submitted their report two weeks ago, um, an expert panel. And there's a sunset clause. From the 17th of March next year, 2023, psychiatric patients, uh, mental patients suffering from only a psychiatric or mental illness will qualify. Right. So they do not need a comorbidity that's a, you know, a physical, physical. a physical illness. So they're looking at how should they introduce this. They're looking at, at, at safeguards and protocols, et cetera. Okay. So Chris, uh, there seems to be quite a shift in that sense. Yeah. I think as far as I remember, that's also what happened in, in the Netherlands. Initially yes. it was, it was allowed for physical illnesses, but not for psychiatric illnesses. But over time that changed. So although it's still a small percentage that, that is allowed, I think. You, you can now apply for assisted dying yes. based on psychiatric Bel- Belgium also. So I think that this is an issue which, as psychiatry, we are going to have to face and we're going to have to engage with and have rational discussions about how we want to position ourselves. Because if it is available, not in our jurisdiction, but in other jurisdictions, at some point it may well become relevant in the local setting. And obviously, we're going to need to be prepared as a discipline in terms of how we're going to engage, Chris. So that's why I think these these discussions might not be immediately relevant, but I think they're yeah. important for what's coming over the hill, so yeah. to speak. Now, I want to bring my third guest in, but before I do, I just want to mention something that I came across in the uh, 
April British Medical Journal, where they were looking, this was the United Kingdom Office for National uh, Statistics. And what they were saying was that completed suicide amongst terminally ill patients not granted permission for assisted dying was double that of the general population. So if not granted, it seems that the patient may well proceed anyway. So I think mm. that's very important. And, and, and what the piece was arguing for was for a change in UK legislation, that it's time for reform. So with that piece of information um, out there, I want to bring in our third guest. He's been sitting quietly listening to this conversation. And our third guest is Sean Davison. Now, Sean is a professor in the Department of Biotechnology at the University of the Western Cape, and he recently published a book, The Price of Mercy, A Fight for the Right to Die with Dignity, which is now available uh, in bookshops. I, I saw it over the weekend and provides an account of Sean's journey, his belief in the right to die with dignity, his involvement in rendering assistance based on his belief, serving various periods of house arrest, having been found guilty of murder in rendering such assistance, and most recently having served a three-year sentence here in South Africa, having previously served a five-month sentence in New Zealand. Now, Sean founded the uh, organization Dignity SA in, in, in 2012. So, Sean, I want to welcome you, and, and, and thanks for agreeing to join us. I, I think it's been a profoundly personal beginning to, to, to this journey that, that you've undertaken. And so... I really just want to open the floor to you for, for reflections on the conversation and reflections on, on your journey. So I'm not going to tackle you with any specific questions. I'm going to open the floor to you and, 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 and we'll take it from there. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I can add that I co-founded Dignity Day right. with Philip Mandlin. I could not have done this without him. A brilliant mind. Very, very lucky to have him. Um, I'd like to go straight to the crux of the matter with the three men I helped to die. And it's very important to note that anyone can commit right. suicide at any time, if you're able. The three men I helped to die were totally incapable of ending their own life. And the bottom line is, if they could have done it on their own, they would have done it on their own. And uh, if everyone understood that, I probably wouldn't have been arrested or gone to court. Um, in effect, I, for Dr. Anna Berger, he was a quadriplegic. He planned his own death. He, he wrote a prescription for phenobarbital, which you can obtain in South Africa. He went to the chemist with his caregiver, right, and the pharmacy, and collected the prescription. I was only there at the very end to be his hands. And really... It certainly isn't murder. It's barely assisted suicide. I had yes. to provide. So, in murder. other words, you were there to provide comfort at the end, more than f physically participate in, wow. in, 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 in in what he ultimately did. Yeah, uh, I can. Well, on that comfort note, he would have liked to have had more comfort, but the people he wanted to comfort him opposed him ending his life. His family. Well, not his immediate family supported him, his mother. But he had other friends around him and medical doctors all trying to stop him ending his own life, trying to convince him to want to live. And what he really wanted them to do is, hey, Anrak, I understand you, and I'm going to be with so tell, you at the so end. So it sounds it. to me that this was a man in possession of all of his faculties. He was completely rational. 
He did not suffer from any comorbid psychiatric condition because they seem to want it the other way around for psychiatric patients or had wanted it the other way around that they've got to have a comorbid physical condition. He had no psychiatric condition and in clear consciousness and consistently he had said, I've had enough. This is not a way to live. This is not the life that I would wish on anyone and I don't want it for myself and I am going to plot, plan and implement my own demise. So, therefore, the question for me is, how on earth, and I'm not a lawyer, did it amount to murder on your part? Yeah. Very good question. Um, also keep in mind, he was given the green light to go to Dignitas. That green light period had lapsed, and he had to reapply for it. And then he got very worried. He, he said... He's so worried that he has to have a psychiatric report and he might not get it this time because when you want to end your life, the psychiatrist will say there's something wrong with you. And again, we come to the point, more medication, right. more blah, blah, blah. Okay. He didn't want any more medication. Only he could decide whether his life was worth living. And in his opinion, it wasn't worth living. He didn't want to be sitting in his wheelchair, watching so lives go on around. So I think one of the difficult issues is how a medical professional who spends their life saving lives can get their head around the fact that somebody in clear consciousness rationally says, I've had enough. Let me go, and could you please provide me with what I need to actually help me on my way? So I think that that often is is, is potentially a major stumbling mm -hmm. block, Is 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 the... Potentially, I'm, I'm not saying it is, but is it that the medical profession themselves cannot get their heads around the fact that this is a rational decision or a rational request? I think it goes beyond the medical profession. We're all wired to live, and we live each day to the full, not thinking about what is going to happen at the end. And that's only a natural human reaction. I don't right. hold it against anybody. But when you are exposed to it, usually it's with a, a parent or elderly grandparent dying, and you see how difficult their death is, only then do you become aware of it and start thinking about it and how your death might be. And it comes to the very first point you raised in this uh, discussion, uh, people not being aware of the issue, not talking about it. And by having... A conversation now that's actually helping. Well, I'd like to think deal. so because I, I think it's an issue that's not going to go away, and I think it's an issue that is very real. It's very current, and obviously, you know, with with the release of your book and with your release from 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 house arrest, I I would imagine that there will be many more discussions like this. But you've spoken about one particular individual. I know that there were three um, in relation to the. Um, house arrest that you were sentenced to in, in, in South Africa. The other two cases, um, how did they differ from, from, from the one that you described? Well, Justin, Ver uh, uh, let's go to Richard Holland first. He, he was in a similar condition to Dr. Anna Berger, but worse. He could only move one eyelid and one thumb to communicate. It's referred to as locked-in syndrome. Only 30 years old, um, a very intelligent man, a wealthy family, had, he had all the treatments available in the world, but he wanted to die. He, he realised there was no hope of recovery, and he didn't want to spend the rest of his life moving a thumb in an island. 
but he's able to communicate quite clearly with alphabet boards. And in that particular die. situation, how how were you involved, which ultimately led to the uh, con- conviction? Um, I was contacted because my name was in the media and they'd heard of Dignity SA. That was the first approach for advice on how he could do it when he couldn't swallow and what medicines were available. And yeah, one thing led to another and eventually I was present at his death, which led so to murder. Within the context of the of the second case that you've you've described, again I'm understanding that your role was much more of a, a facilitator. You facilitated more than actively participated in the, the, the ending of life. Am I am I correct or yeah. um, I, I did facilitate the medication providing it and the delivering of it, which was why it led to a murder conviction. The reason I did that is because I was with his mother, who had clearly supported his death after doing everything possible to find joy in his life. Oh, sure. and she didn't want to lose her son. And at the very end, I could understand her not being the one to want to administer okay. the lethal medication. It was me feeling compassion yes. for the mother. So you administered, Sean, is that there. correct? So I did, yeah. I mean, this is a very direct question now because, I mean, I've, I've been present, and I'm not equating humans to animals, but I've been present where I've had to euthanize various of my cats, and I've always wanted to be present, mm. and I've watched that injection, mm. and I've seen the life mm. seep out of them with a sigh, and they go, mm. and it's peaceful. It's a very profound mm. moment, though. It's a very, and, and, and it's been the vet who's been administering. I've simply been ob- observing. And so my question to you, and, mm. and, and I suppose you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but when you actually administer and you're there and you're watching life ebb out of the person in front of you, what is that experience, Sean? Mm. Because, I mean, I, I've, I, I mean I've, I've certified people dead as a medical doctor. I've seen people die. But this is something. This is something quite different in my experience. And so, could you share your experience? I mean, your your thoughts, your feelings in that moment. Okay. Uh, keep in mind, uh, it was a moment that built up over many weeks and months beforehand. It wasn't a spontaneous decision. I'm going to help someone to die. I deliberated for a long time right. and thought about not doing it. And I thought about doing it and the consequences of doing it. So when the time came, I was mentally prepared. And it did take mental preparation. It's not instinctive. No, not at all. And I think that that's why I'm I'm thinking about the psychological consequences for you. As much as you have a firm belief in in Mm. the dignity of life and the dignity of death and the right to choose, I'm thinking about what the psychological consequence would be for you. And I'm not forgetting that this journey began back mm. in 2010 in New Zealand with your mom. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it comes down to the right. bottom line that I'm a human being, and we're all human beings, and it's in our nature not to turn our backs on human suffering. It's a hallmark of humanity not to turn our backs. And we only need to look at the battlefields where you're soldier beside you, guts open, dying miserably, right. will be begging for help 
and you will help your soldier on the battlefield. It's a bit like that. We don't turn our backs on human suffering. So what it's I'm understanding, Sean, is that your compassion, in a sense, is more powerful than any sense of, of, of possible regret um, that you may have. And, and, and what I'm understanding is that, that you, you, you feel comfortable with, with, with what you've done because of your belief and because of your compassion and your humanity, because that's really what you're saying. I have no regrets. And at the moment of the death, I felt the relief of the person who was dying. And particularly in Richard Holland's case, lockdown syndrome at 30 and the tragedy of the accident knocked off a bicycle. The whole process was dreadfully tragic. And yeah, I felt for his okay. relief. And, and, and you felt comfortable and you felt a sense of relief yourself that this, his suffering was now over. Could you relate to that as well? Yeah, it was a combination of that relief. And the tragedy, the tragedy of a 30-year-old knocked off his bicycle, knowing it could happen to anybody, a combination of relief and tragedy. Sean, I mean, obviously you've, you've been, I'm going to use the word punished in inverted commas, in terms of, of, of the law. How, how has it impacted on you in terms of, of, of broader society? Have you experienced any isolation or any stigma or, 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 or any negative uh, 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 sentiments? Um, towards you as a as a consequence of, of of your involvement in these in these cases. No, on the contrary, overwhelming support everywhere I've been, and um, Willem's been following some blogs. Very very strong support. I know there will be people opposed to it, but ultimately, when it all changes, it's not forced on anybody. It is only an option. And my feeling, and I think Willem will agree. The mood of the country is overwhelming right. for a lot Now, you, you had a, a close relationship with uh, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Um, what were his thoughts, actually, um, in terms of, 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 of your involvement um, with Dignity SA and, and, and where you were coming from? Uh, when he first supported me is when I was arrested in New Zealand, and he was the Chancellor ah. of my university, he didn't, he didn't know me individually. I was another professor at the university. But he did write to the court asking that I'd be allowed back to my home country, South Africa, until the trial. Then I got to know him. And when I first met him to thank him for what he did, he said he'd never thought about assisted dying or euthanasia. And over the coming years, he really, really opened his mind to the idea. And he went public. Initially, to say he supported the idea, it was in an article in The Guardian in, in the UK, and then in 2016 came out and said he would like an assisted death if the situation arose, if he needed it. Incredible for a man, a leader of the church and a follower of African ancestral religions to come out and say that. And when he spoke... I'm sure that was listened. the case, and I'm sure that that is the case. And, and, and I think the fact that he, he, he endorsed... Um, what you stood for is a very powerful testament to, um, you know, where uh, the situation is. Can you tell me just a little bit about Dignity SA? I know that you're the co-founder, but I've got you in front of the in front of me now. And and so, can you tell me a little bit about Dignity SA? Because I I think that it's not necessarily an organisation that is 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 as well known as it might be. And I think we have an opportunity just uh, to to get a sense of 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 what it's all about and 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 uh, 
where things are at with the organization. We're very focused on the law change um, with the safeguards that right. Willem Landman has mentioned. And as Willem, Willem said, going through Parliament is a difficult route to take, but ultimately it has yes. to be done in Parliament, as happened in Canada. The route we're taking now is through a particular applicant going to the High Court, Dieter Haak, seeking an assisted death for his motor neuron disease, or the option of having it. He might not take it, right. but he wants to have the option. We may not succeed, and then it will go to the Supreme Court of Appeal. And if we don't succeed there, we will go to the Constitutional Court this time. And Willem has quite um, very clear ideas of what might happen at the Constitutional Court. And should we succeed there, then the Court and Parliament are on different pages, and the Court will instruct Parliament to change the law. But maybe Willem might like to comment on the prospect of succeeding well, at the Constitutional Court. Well, the, the interesting thing is we, we talked about the Stransom Ford case, right. that, that we, the appeal was upheld. In other words, we lost. But I had um, at least one uh, Constitutional Court judge said to me afterwards that he was disappointed that he didn't come to the Constitutional Court. Right. So there was a sense that it could have been different but, you know, it costs money and sure. advocates, uh, advocates had to be, you know, in on it. Um. Well, I think that what I'm hearing, without holding anybody to their word, is that there would be a certain um, – they'd be, they'd be receptive to, to, to hearing such a case. Mm. Sean, I've got to ask you a difficult mm. question. I mean, given everything that you've been through and given now that you're a free man, so to speak, you've served your time – would you mm. consider a further case or would you hold off whilst you pursue legal routes to kind mm. of try to get this resolved in a way that then will ensure that any further such involvement would not lead to criminal charges? I do not want to go to court. I do not want to be right. charged with murder again. Yes. I've got a young family. They yeah. want a father not a hero right. sitting in jail. I know it's a fine line between being courageous and being foolhardy. And I now know how well, I think that you've, that you've, you've walked the walk. And I think that's what's so important. You know, myself, Chris, Willem, we can talk about the theory of it in a sense and the ethics of it. But I think that in, in, in you, we have someone who's actually stepped across that line and without being a medical person, you've engaged in, 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 in doing something which neither of, or none of us can actually uh, a, a attest to. So you've, you've certainly walked the walk. And I, I think now what I'm understanding is from a pragmatic point of view and from a self-preservation point of view, you've kind of understood, okay, been there, done that. We'll see what the future holds, but there's another path that I have to walk in order to get to that point. Would Christopher, that be? Christopher, can I come in yes. on this? It's, it's very dangerous out there. Yes. I understand fully what Sean is saying. Just consider this. Yes. The time mm. that lapsed between Andrich Berger, Andrich Berger's death. Yes, back then. Back then. And Sean's arrest was five years. Right. And there are sinister forces at mm. work. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a day, it's mm. dangerous out there. And I support, I support Sean in, in his, in his choice in this regard. He has to be careful. No, no, absolutely. Cause I think that's really what I'm getting to is, is, is that there's a certain pragmatism that has to prevail ultimately. 
you've had the experience, you understand what the implications are. It's time to step back and take a different route. Would I be correct in that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, my news will disappear, but there'll be another yes. case. It won't be mine, <laughs> and another, and and another. This will keep on coming back yes. again and again until it is dealt with compassionately well, by the law. I think that that's a that's a very important understanding, and I think it's a it's a good place to 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 close today's discussion. Uh, Willem, any further comments, or Chris, any comments from you? Mm. No closing. Uh, well, just briefly, I think the cases, you know, the patients Sean helped illustrate to us the the, the problem of simply legalizing um, a physician-assisted suicide and not voluntary euthanasia because there are people who are unable to commit suicide. In right. fact, the Supreme Court said that if we, we come to legalizing or decriminalizing, we come to that stage, we'll have to look at equality rights. So some people would blame Sean for actually actively helping rather than, you know, providing providing the means which the patient themselves self-administers. But it's impossible for some patients to do that, and there's an issue of equality and discrimination. So that's where the distinction between physician-assisted suicide and voluntary yes. euthanasia yes. is important because the one is is, is, is not active in terms of the person helping, whereas yes. the other is. The, 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 the real difference is that the final act might be that of the patient or of somebody else. Correct. And what we're saying is actually all should be decriminalized. Exactly. I think that's, that's where we are. So, Chris, Willem, Sean, I said before the episode, I think I've got three separate episodes in one podcast because I think that there are many, many issues that we could probably discuss much further. But I think what's important is that we've, we've put the, we've put the issue out there and I think it's going to provoke thought. I don't know what action will follow, but obviously through Dignity SA, there is a process that will hopefully unfold. So I'm not sure that today's episode has provided definitive answers to the vexing questions related to end-of-life decisions, but at the very least, um, I believe it has placed in the spotlight an issue that will not go away, an issue that requires a multi- and interdisciplinary approach towards determining a path forward that is legally, medically, and ultimately ethically sound, and provides for something I would imagine most, if not all, would want for themselves and their loved ones, death with dignity. In closing, a quote from Seneca, the ancient Roman philosopher, a Stoic, with a reflection on life that I think provides an important perspective on dying. Let us prepare our minds as if we come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE.